Yeah. So I guess we should start um, by saying we, we've we known each other more or less for, how, I don't know, how long? I think it's four years. Four years, yeah. And that was back in Nicaragua. We crossed paths. And we were just saying before we kicked off the podcast, you've done so much traveling in that four years, like a crazy amount of traveling. So how many countries do you reckon you've been to now? I think I'm up to 82, I believe. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I tried to, uh, 83. Yeah. I tried to keep count after I went above like 40. I, I made a little list. So 83 and COVID has uh, amputated a few extra countries this year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but uh, hopefully soon I'll get to travel again. Yeah. That's, it's pretty incredible to me to know that you work as a doctor and you still find the time to be able to do that much travel. I've never met someone who's had that cool of a, a, um, like a, it's almost like you're living two lives in unison at the same time. It's so interesting that you're able to, to balance, um, both of those, like 80 countries is huge. That's, that's a big, big achievement. Yeah, and I've been, uh, most of them, I mean, I'm not counting countries I've been in one day. I mean, potentially Monaco. Uh, But, uh, (laughs) yeah, well, it's because when I go to work, I I work uh, a few weeks in a row, seven days a week, and then I have have some time off, so I like to go elsewhere in the world and see different cultures and see how people are living elsewhere. But then when I work, uh, it's pretty intense for the time I'm doing it. So, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty nice lifestyle, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. And, um, so you're working as a, is it called like a remote communities doctor or is there a sort of title for what you do or? No. So I'm a family physician, uh, as anywhere else. Uh, but I chose to work in a remote community. Um, obviously I do more than the family physicians do. Uh, in bigger cities because uh, we don't have any specialists coming. Well, we do have a couple of specialists coming in for a few days every few months, but otherwise we have to deal with way more emergency situations and uh, talk to specialists over the phone because, uh, I mean, we don't have them available. So I'm trained as a family physician, but I do more than a family physician in, let's say, a bigger city like Montreal. Um, I work in a town where in total, including the workers that work here, we're 2000 people. So the efficient coming in a couple of days, every few months, uh, psychiatrists, but otherwise we deal over the phone and people have to drive minimum an hour and a half to get to a bigger center. Wow. So uh, working in the remote community, what made you, because you said you obviously chose to do that. And that's, that's what I love. That's really why I wanted to, to have you on the podcast is because that's so cool to me. That's so interesting that something, I guess, inside you was telling you to go out there. And what do you reckon that was? What, what attracted you to going out to the remote communities? Well, I started when I was a medical student, so we had to do uh, some family medicine that wasn't in the city. I trained in Montreal, uh, so in a bigger city, and two of the months in uh, medical school, we had to go to uh, basically a smaller center. And, I mean, you could choose to go to, let's say, 15, 20 minutes car away from Montreal, or then there were, you could go to see the Inwoods really up north or the Crees, which is where I work. 
And I figured that if I'm going to go outside of Montreal, I might as well go completely outside of my comfort zone. And I really liked it. And I found it really inspiring, the doctors, like how resourceful they had to be and how it was so different. It was almost like traveling within your own, not only country, but even your own province. Uh, and I did some more of that when I was uh, training to become a, a family doctor. And then as I finished medical school, one of my first uh, assignments was here in this community, uh, West Wannabe, and I liked it and I needed doctors and I started working here, I started to know the people, it's so small that you, you, know, you cross people on the street and you know almost everyone, everyone recognizes you and I kind of like the vibe, the challenges professionally and I decided to, uh, to stay here as a permanent doctor and it's been seven years now. So, wow. Yeah. And you, yeah, that's so that's so cool. And what you were saying um I think uh just before we started recording as well that you do 7 days on or 2 weeks on and then you have time off as well. Oh no, you you mentioned that in this as well. But so how does that work uh for the time you're on? What does a normal day look like? Is it a 12-hour day for 7 days straight or so here in West Wannabe, when I started, we were one or two doctors at a time. Uh, so the normal workday is kind of a nine to five where you have appointments. And between the appointments, obviously there could be people that come in with emergencies. So then you go see the emergency. If you're the only doctor, uh, then you have uh, you're responsible for emergencies 24 hours a day. So if someone comes in with a heart attack at 3 a.m., you get woken up by the nurse on call and you go in the clinic and deal with that. Now we're more lucky and we're usually two and sometimes three doctors. So you get one day that nine, well, 5 p.m. to 9 a.m., you have the call, well, the call phone and they call you if there's an emergency and then the other day it's the other doctor and you alternate if you're three you're really lucky so you do that every third day or else if you're alone then you're technically working from nine to five but then you're on call the rest of the time that you're here and you we work typically seven days a week and depending on how often you come you can do uh, one of our doctors here is extra full-time and she does sometimes eight weeks at a time so it can get wow i mean it's labor intensive i usually do three weeks now at a time because after that it's kind of my psychological tipping point yeah that's that's totally fair three weeks in any job uh full-time day day after day is it's a lot of work for sure and how are you close to the arctic is that how far north you are i'm probably a silly question but how far no, north? I'm actually quite. I'm one of the most southern uh, communities. I chose this one as well, partly, not exclusively, because it's uh, it's an hour and a half plane ride. Or if I were to take a car, it's uh, I believe six to eight hours, something like that, by car. Um, whereas more north. When I was training, I went to the Inuits really up north. It's many, many hours by, well, many, many, let's say seven hours by plane. And then wow. there's no road access. And in that case, if you need someone to go to a hospital and the weather conditions are not good, you might need to take care of that patient for days before the plane can land. Oh, wow. So 
it's it's small, it's remote, but I'm fairly close to civilization compared to the Arctic kind of uh, more deep. more in the Arctic is more uh, the Inuit people, and uh, I have been there as a trainee, but it's even more challenging because you don't have any road access. So if the plane cannot land to take your patients, you're pretty much stuck up there. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it's such a. I guess that's one of the things about being so remote is obviously access to to healthcare and medical facilities is going to be way 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 smaller or way less. We have a thing in Australia called um the Royal Flying Doctor Service which um it's essentially it's essentially that they're doctors that fly around to remote communities <clears throat> to medically evacuate people or check on people that have had injuries and they can't make it to the hospital. So it's yeah it's it's crazy to think i think australia has uh probably less population in remote communities a, a lot of our population still hangs to the coastline but canada and australia sh- share that similarity in that they're um they both have a big country and then you know communities that are really far out of reach so it's cra- yeah it's yeah. there is a doctor that works in one of our communities that did do uh a year or two in Australia uh, in a similar setting and the communities I'm lucky that we have a road access to the nearest hospital so the likelihood of ambulance not being to go on the able to go on the road is more limited than uh, a plane not being able to land so that's a bit of a security blanket but yeah there are some really remote communities that don't even have a doctor they have a nurse uh and sometimes yeah it's challenging to get to especially in the winter with blizzards and snow and conditions and several community needing the one plane that is available uh, it is a challenge yeah and what's with the seasonal change that you get um where you are is there more accidents that happen more more times of the year in certain seasons so an example might be uh sledding accidents like using the the um the skidoos or whatever in the winter or hunting accidents in the summer or do you tend to notice that some injuries come and go with the seasons well winter time i mean i haven't really seen much skidoo accidents although they do use them a lot uh winter time we have had a few patients that come in uh, in uh, hypothermia so uh, people, um, I mean, it is known in a lot of communities, there are some alcohol and drug use problems uh, that some people are facing. And so people can, for instance, get drunk, forget that they're cold, pass out in minus 40 in a snowbank and just be found by police. Oh, uh, wow then brought to the clinic rigid cold. So in the winter, uh, we had we have had a few cases of people just passing out in the street after having consumed substances and uh, being found. Uh, hunting accidents, we really didn't have that many. There are, if there's a weekend of celebrations like graduation or like party modes, then we have more injuries in terms of people getting drunk, fighting each other. Um, but otherwise, summer, 
We have had a couple of drownings in the summer, but except for hypothermia, I wouldn't say that seasons change much. It's mostly like event, like events going on in the community, uh, big weddings, uh, graduations, parties that we know about in advance. Uh, but yeah, winter we have had a lot of cold people coming in. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny being an Australian. It's not something you ever have to think about if you're leaving the bar or leaving wherever. You never have to think winter or summer. Oh, I could, I I got to be careful here because I could freeze to death. But it's definitely a reality in Canada, especially when it gets to minus twenty, minus thirty, minus forty, even. It's. Oh, if you're if you're drunk, believe me, some people came in in minus forty bare feet because they just are not cold and they feel quite warm. But no, they're not. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. So yeah, hypothermia I think is a, is a big one, and then we have a lot of uh, people coming in, yeah, partying and in fights. That's but that's pretty much it depends on the event, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not a lot. I haven't had a hunting accident yet, and. A ski do, I've had a few, but not uh, nothing really major. Yeah. Do you think you'll stay out there for another seven years or seven seasons? Uh, well, you know, I try to do uh, year by year. I started off this being, uh, well, I'll do this for a year and I'll travel in between and then I'll settle down in Montreal and have a normal clinic and uh, have a five days a week job and yeah I kind of got a little bit addicted to those lifestyles so who knows uh, I mean I'm not planning on quitting anytime soon I don't know if it's going to be seven years or two years or ten years but uh, it's also nice to be able because the community is so small you're able to get to know your patients and see them walking in the street and it's really hard in Montreal to have a patient and happen to bump into him on the sidewalk. Uh, here it happens a lot. And so then you get attached to the community and people are really nice and they want to share their culture. Uh, so, yeah, I don't plan on quitting anytime soon, but how long? I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, That's so interesting that, like, everyone in the community more or less knows their local doctor. That's That's really cool. It just goes to show how maybe connected everyone is and I guess the smaller communities know everyone more so. But I understand what you're saying about walking around in Montreal. It'll probably happen way less, but out where you are, it's I'm sure you bump into people you saw only the day before. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you can't keep a secret in Los Everyone knows everything. And I mean, I, I mean, this is an exaggeration, but there's maybe five streets in West Wannabe. So if you're going to take a walk, likelihood you'll pass someone you know is is pretty high. So and it's nice. It gives you a sense of like uh, belonging of it. So uh, I'm sure I, I'm not. I can't remember where from Australia you're at, but I'm sure you don't really see a lot of people you know on a daily basis just walking around if you're from a bigger city. So. Yeah, that's that in Metro. If I, if I happen to see someone on the street that I know, it's a big surprise. Here, it, everyone just waves at you, and it makes the interaction more friendly as well when you see them as patients. Yeah. I've, I guess the places where I've lived briefly um, when I've been overseas, when there have been that smaller town vibe, I've just loved it. I've loved it so much when I've, you, you get to know 
the person who serves you at the supermarket or you get to know the person at the bakery or you get to I love that feeling as well I have had that a couple times uh in places I've sort of settled but never um none I would I would get that far less back home in Australia definitely my town is like oh like 15 or 20,000 people but it's also surrounded by other towns that all have 5,000 or 10,000 so it's kind of like one big chain of towns so you can easily just go to the town next door and then not bump into anyone you know or kind of if that makes sense yeah well uh, where we met in Nicaragua in San Juan so uh, I mean we, I think we both stayed there a month I would go in the street and know pretty much everyone I bumped into that kind of lived there well this is a fourth of the population of San Juan del Sur so you know literally everyone you yeah. or by sight I mean I'm not saying you know their name and medical history but you've seen them passing by yeah yeah San Juan definitely had that small town vibe going on everyone sort of hangs out at the same places and goes to the beach together and goes surfing together and stuff so yeah that's true you definitely get to know everyone pretty quick there yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, that's what I kind of kept me here. And also, you get a bit of challenges. You don't see. You always see new things. You have to figure out how to deal with things without specialists. So it's also intellectually challenging, mm. um, as opposed to just saying, "Okay, let's just tell them to go to the specialist or refer them to the ER." Well, you know, that means them either flying to Montreal or driving an hour and a half to see someone and then they being referred so then you can you know you make more of an effort to try to figure it out yourself or call the specialist and you learn to manage more more things as well so it's definitely not easier it's kind of it's a harder medicine but it's challenging intellectually you always learn new things yeah that's so cool though i think that's such a an awesome chapter to have in anyone's career at any point in their life let alone for someone like a doctor who there's to get that experience early on in your career as a physician or a doctor is, I think that's amazing to, to really have to go through the fire, so to speak, and test yourself. And then when, when, or if you ever do decide to go back to Montreal, it'll probably seem, Oh, I've been here, done that kind of thing. And that experience is, is invaluable. I reckon. Oh yeah. I mean, and uh, I, well, now I stopped, but I used to do a walking clinic in Montreal and, it was so run of the mill. Uh, our nurses here are amazing. They deal with, they have a special training uh, for up north specifically mm-hmm. uh, that even they can't do in Montreal. So they can treat ear infections, lung infections, skin infections with antibiotics by a guide, and they have a special training for that. So we don't even see those because the nurses deal with them, which they're not allowed to do that south. So, uh, so then when I do walk-in clinic in Montreal, it's like things that I don't even deal with here because those are dealt with by the nurses. Um, so, yeah, to answer your previous questions, I, I kind of would find it hard to just go back to Montreal and dealing with really basic stuff, whereas I have the liberty to deal with whatever I feel comfortable with here. And some people are good doing ultrasounds that they know how to see gallstones. I'm not particularly good, but... I'm good with heart, lungs, and pregnancy stuff. I can deal with that. So it is really rewarding as work. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Is there anything um, in particular um, drawing you to perhaps, 
I guess, going to a... Would you ever consider going to a different remote community or you feel like you're pretty attached to everyone where you are now? Um, I have nothing against going to a different community. Uh, I think... So what would keep me here is that... Well, first of all, the patients that I already know... Uh, yeah. It's a lot quicker to see a patient that you know the history of and then you just have to deal with what brings them then and there uh, as well and this will sound completely like non-interesting but just paperwork and administrative stuff like how to order a certain test how to order imaging where do you send the patient if they need to see a psychologist where like just yeah those yeah little things make your life so much easier when you know how it works in a community and all of the community even though they're, let's say, all Cree or all in with the different clinics, run different ways, and you give it to different people, and they deal with it in a different way. And just learning that probably takes you a couple of weeks. So getting used to that is more that that kind of is... The medicine is the same, but then how administratively it works. I feel I'm efficient in Waswanapi because I know how it works. I know who to talk to and things work smoothly not to say that i wouldn't go to another community but i think my like base community would probably stay what's want to be yeah especially seven years i kind of got the gist of how things work here yeah you feel like a local for sure do you ever have you ever had like an experience with the um with the locals out there that you felt was uh i guess obviously something you couldn't have happen in Montreal, but a, a specific moment where you were like, wow, this is why I came out here kind of thing? Well, usually, I mean, now in COVID, things uh, have kind of shut down and depending on how COVID is in the province, we kind of open and close variably. But uh, usually at lunchtime, uh, there's a lady that cooks uh, traditional food uh down, well, we call it down the river, but uh, like in, in a kind of a bigger building slash hut. Uh, and I mean, sometimes it's traditional food, sometimes it's less traditional food, but all the local people go eat there. It's free, I mean, or by donation. And she cooks food for the community that wants to come eat. There's a whole cultural month that is in uh, March where every lunch and after uh, after work you can go and you can see how they prepare moose hide, how they do snowshoes and it's all basically what they prepare and that makes you feel a lot more kind of in a First Nations community um, yeah that's but, I mean it's not one experience but it's all those experiences when someone passes away there's a funeral feast and I mean, you don't have to be a family member or someone that knows the family and the whole community is invited by the family of the deceased to come and commemorate the deceased. And so they all serve uh, beaver, moose, lynx, rabbit, whatever they have uh, and commemorate the deceased. They do the same for weddings. They're very welcoming if you're willing to, to explore their culture. They're really you know, they want to show you how the traditional ways are done. And that's what probably I enjoyed the most 
I mean, outside the just medical work, I like going to eat traditional food at lunch and to see how they prepare a beaver and bear and what parts they eat and what parts they don't eat. So mm -hmm. that's really fun for me. And during COVID, because uh, of sanitary restrictions, we don't really have this at the moment. But oh, of course, yeah. That's that I can't have in Montreal. I mean, yeah, that's so incredible that they have moose hide and they eat lynx and beaver i mean that's it sounds maybe cliche but that's the kind of things i sort of pictured when i was trying to imagine what is the the native culture of the first nations people because it, I, I just think there's so much more to to discover for someone who hasn't had the experience that you've had um they might never know that or hear that that that's um that that's part of the culture and it's really cool to hear that they invite everyone to to a funeral as well. I think that's definitely less of a... That doesn't really happen in the traditional Western culture at all. A funeral is quite quite private. They sort of just come and, come and go with the people that know the person and then it's it's over. But to hear that a whole community comes together for a funeral is... It's interesting, for sure. And they come together for all kinds of things. I've been to like baptisms of babies that I didn't know and weddings of people I didn't know and funerals of people I didn't know. They, it's just kind of to show that you're part of the community and they don't, there's no guest list at the beginning where you invited, where you're not invited, you're allowed this amount of food and like it's really, and the elders are served first and it's a real sense of community. I really, really enjoy that from here. And I think it shows a nicer perspective than, um, you know, the media in Canada. And I don't know if it's the same in Australia. They, they'll talk a lot about the drug and alcohol problems, the violence problems, the violence problems, which do exist, but there's also some nice things about uh, the communities. And they do try to kind of keep some of their culture alive. Yeah. I think um, even with COVID, the maybe it's just my interpretation, but it feels more like people are sort of realizing the importance more and more of that sort of that small town vibe and the small institutions and charities and volunteer organizations that operate within small towns like the food bank or the Rotary Club or in Australia... You know, we have Surf Life Saving, which is a, a more or less free thing that people volunteer their time or the Rural Fire Service is the volunteer organization for, for some people who come and fight fires in the summer um, or SES, which is the um, emergency management. Uh, so when there's like a, what do you call it? special emergency services? So when there's like a flood or a cyclone or something, these people volunteer their time to come help as well. And I think with COVID, people have been impacted in their small communities and even in bigger communities, like a, let's say Sydney City, but then they've realised, oh, I'm I'm from Penrith. Where's the Penrith Food Bank or the Penrith Salvation Army or the Penrith this, that or the other? And I really hope that people start to realise that um, the small community matters. It really does. on a Within your community and within the city and within the... The country, if that makes sense. I don't know. It's, um... Yeah, well, I mean, we now have kind of a... We we were lucky enough in Waswanabe not to get um, 
any COVID yet, but all the other community, or yet, I mean, maybe never, but, uh, well, in the second wave, but all the other communities are actually off limits to us. So basically, unless you live here or work here, you can't come in. So you have to rely on your own community. Um, yeah, true. And I think here, the community center is pretty big in the beginning. And I think maybe in bigger cities, it's, it's got people closer. I think here, it, it, I mean, people do, I mean, they, you know, there's positives and negatives in being in a small city. Everyone knows everyone's business, but at the same time, everyone kind of tries to help each other. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. There are some community services that I've discovered during COVID, to be fair. It is true. Like yeah. some local resources because people can't go anywhere else. Yeah. And I really hope that permeates to a global level. I know, I know it sounds maybe a bit far-fetched, but we really are all more or less wanting the same thing out of life. We want to get on with our business, be happy, have our family, have our health, breathe fresh air, drink clean water. And I, I think life gets complicated and it's really nice to know that at the end of the day, when something goes wrong, we are all human and in our small communities, each other matters, our country matters, and then as a globe, we matter as as a people too. So I don't know, I hope people sort of have time to breathe during COVID and, and think about that stuff because, I don't know. Well, I, you, you realize what was, what's important in life, you realize that you managed to go a few weeks without going to the hairdresser, without getting your nails done, without... Uh, you know, with only seeing the people. Here we, we're at two households permitted. Um, I mean, you realize that you're able to go without a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And what's really important in life, which is your health and like your loved ones and everyone's health. And it also kind of shows you have to be like a sense of solidarity because you need to sacrifice some things of your own life so that everyone is healthier. You know, even if you're healthy or you are immune to COVID, well, you need to isolate so that other people also can be healthy. Yeah, um, that's, that's a really good point. This, but, you know, if you try to pull some positives out of that, <laughs> you get to, yeah, you see what's important in life. Yeah. Well, it's the situation is what it is. We may as well try and find some learning lessons and positives along the way, I think, but... No, I totally know what you mean. It, it, I felt pretty bad, actually, because um, my whole house where I am now is is having to isolate because I tested positive. And that means that there's like 10 people that all have to essentially can't... No one can really leave the house for 14 days until I'm, cl- I'm cleared and can go back out. And then they have to finish their 14-day period as well. So when I got tested and got positive... At first, I was like, okay, I can deal with this. I've done a, I've done one quarantine coming back from Peru, and I've also done a quarantine going into Canada. But then it kind of dawned on me, oh, no. Like, I'm kind of dragging everyone else in the house into this with me as well. And that was, like, what you were saying about solidarity. I was honestly a little nervous to, like, tell everyone in the house. And I know that's, like, selfish. Obviously, I had to, and I was going to. But once the BC Health, like, people, uh, the nurse, sorry, finished talking to me, I just posted in the the house chat and said, hey, guys, uh, so I have tested positive because they already knew that I was isolating, waiting for my results. 
And I was honestly amazed at how well everyone took it. Like the whole house, everyone was like, okay, like, what do we need to do? Um, that, that's really the nice positive attitude you want from people because obviously you didn't want to bring COVID to the house. You didn't come in purposely with COVID for everyone to isolate. So it's kind of a, you want people to have an attitude. Okay. Well, you know, I don't particularly want to stay in my house for 14 days, but he obviously didn't do it on purpose. So it's, you know, out of solidarity, I'm not going to make him feel bad. He's probably already sick, feeling bad himself. Let's just do this together. And I think I, I haven't really had any feedback of people here, not isolating, like being angry about people isolating because of other people. And, uh, but one of the, First Nations problems is overcrowding. So sometimes I say, I mean, you're not in an overcrowded place, but it's not uncommon for 10 people to live in a household. So if someone isolates, then mm. 10 people isolate. And people take it with, well, okay, it's for him. We're going to isolate and we're going to, I don't know, I don't know, did you play board games or whatever? But, but yeah. I haven't heard any kind of negative oh, we need to isolate because of this person that brought COVID on purpose kind of thing. Yeah, I think the fact that it's global as well, everyone's a bit more understanding that it's going around. And it's, I don't know, it's good. To, I like to see the people are compassionate, even in tough times. It's, it is kind of, it's nice to see. And I hope that I, I take something away from it so I can be a bit more compassionate when the time comes, you know what I mean? Sure, sure. Yeah. I was going to ask, did you always know that you you wanted to be a doctor? Was that something you you knew from a young age when you were finishing high school? You knew well before you went to, to college or is that something? No, actually, no, I'm not one of those that wanted to become a doctor since the age of six and that played doctor. Um, I wanted to become a vet until the age of like 12, maybe. And I had a vet clinic planned out with my best friend, and we're going to become vets and have, yeah, vet clinic, take care of animals. Then I kind of, I don't know, the idea kind of faded, and then I really, really did not know what I wanted to do until I had to apply to university. And so then I applied applied to, um, like, biology, law, medicine, like a whole range of stuff. Wow. And then it was the hardest thing to get into, and I had pretty good grades, so I decided I got accepted in medicine. And medicine, you had to kind of do interviews and write a motivational letter and have reference letters. Mm-hmm. And so then once I got accepted, I was like, well, I don't really know what I want to what I want to do, but I got accepted in that, and that's the hardest to get into, so I would be stupid to say, no, let's try it out, and yeah, I never regretted it, it's actually really interesting, uh, I I actually like it, yeah. it's good, yeah. you know, I have not gone into medicine, and that's one of the things, you know, some people try to get into medicine, they don't get into medicine, they do an undergrad, they try again, they don't get into it, they do grad school, they try again, I feel that people could have several callings. If I hadn't gone into medicine, I would have probably found something else I liked. I really like medicine. I I wouldn't change it now. I don't regret it. But it wasn't my life goal to become a doctor. 
Yeah. Now that I after I got satisfied, but otherwise I could find something else. I would be probably happy doing as well. For sure. Um, so yeah, no, no, it wasn't my life goal. I kind of it was kind of a challenge to get into medical school. I got into medical school and it turned out well. Yeah, I think that's so. Um... Yeah, that's so cool because that definitely, I think that resonates with a lot of other people who maybe are going to university or changing careers. A lot of people are changing careers now that I know around me, uh, close friends or friends in their mid to late 20s. And I I think it's definitely more of a trend with our generation to, to realize that you're not sort of stuck in one job your whole life if you don't, if you don't want to do that you really it's up to you if you want to change and do something new and I, I i totally know what you mean about people maybe having more than one calling in life i think humans are so um we're complex you know we like a lot of things and what interests oh, you like a lot of things like yeah. i don't know i, I watch home renovation shows and I'm like, <laughs> maybe flip houses in their lives like i don't you know yeah yeah, no, totally. That's that's what I mean. That's why I've been I've been so interested by interviewing people on this podcast because I feel that everyone has a story. Everyone has something so interesting about them that's you could pass someone on the street that you would never know is uh uh oh that's she's a doctor or uh, he's a pilot or he's a uh, a paramedic and or he's you know what I mean or she she's ex military or he's uh oh it's no. Uh... Yeah, I, I want to, after being a doctor, like sometimes I feel like, oh, I could run a hostel somewhere. I could, yeah, flip houses, I could do. And so, you know, when people are so disappointed in not getting in their field, mm-hmm. because it's pre- like more prestigious, maybe, or I don't know how to say it, like, but, you know, that there's probably something else you can do in life that will bring you joy. Yeah. I, I I can't remember the name for it, but there's, there's this term that's sort of describes the the life that old, I guess, like old Greek philosophers and Roman aristocrats and stuff would sort of follow. And it talks about how when they enter their career, like let's say take Julius Caesar, for example, they usually start off their life in the military then they then they study law then they enter the civil then they enter civil service and then they sort of finish their life by trying to become a politician and i'm not saying that's the the way to do life but i just i find that that kind of change of career or change of lifestyle as you get older and as you as your wants and needs change i find it kind of healthy i don't know i think it's so cool to know that you people have options and Obviously, and to know like how to do different things. Some, I mean, some doctors like to do some artistic things and do paintings or do music. I have no artistic talent, so this is not my thing. But <laughs> and then you know, it's good to explore other talents in life than just you know being in like medicine a hundred percent of the time or any kind of career a hundred percent of the time. I think like to be a well-rounded human being. Uh, I mean. Totally. If you have an interest, just go. And like, I mean, I like to travel. Uh, when I travel, I mean, I must admit, I don't ask anything about the medicine of the, like, the medical. Well, you know, if it comes in a conversation, I'll ask about the medical system in the area, but yeah. it's not like easy for travel. Yeah, I that's. Like that as well, and you know, 
that's a good point different perspectives and people should i think pursue several kind of interests in life not just one kind of career goal yeah i remember i was at my friend's house in colorado you what you're saying about art just reminded me and also i i, I find it really interesting what you're saying about um not asking about the necess the necessarily the medical side of things when you're traveling it's so normal to switch off you know what i mean i i have friends who are perhaps carpenters and the first thing they do when they get somewhere isn't just want to know how a building is built they're just on holiday or traveling but um i was gonna say i remember i went to a friend's house in colorado and his mum was like making this sculpture and it was made out of, made out of clay or something like that and it was like a horse bust like the head of a horse and it was unreal like it had all the muscles and the ho- like the hair was defined you could see its eye you could see its nose and for me who's like someone who doesn't have any artistic talent i immediately thought oh his mum must be an artist because this horse is just it looks so good and i found out that no she wasn't an artist she was um think she studied law or something like that but she just liked um doing art and I was just it just blew me away I was like wow people have these hobbies that are completely unique in their own and so separate from their everyday life Uh, I just love that yeah I mean I wish I were not an artist I'm not (laughs) but I think I feel it's important for you to also love what you're doing but maybe like it shouldn't consume your whole life I feel like even in medicine, a lot of old school doctors just did that. They went to uh, the clinic or the hospital at 7 a.m., came back home at 9 p.m. and did the same thing seven days a week. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, to, you know, you're also bringing more to the patient. Like you have more of a conversation. You can see their point of view more if you're more cultured in other spheres of Think the medical field is evolving and less being like 24 hours a day being a doctor like you can also have a family you can have other interests and if you're a happy doctor like you're going to be more empath- have more um, empathy towards your patients and be a better doctor than if you're unhappy and just working 24 hours a day yeah in general i tend to find that um, this is a completely up like my personal interpretation, but I find a lot of Canadians are really well balanced like that. Um, and I, th- I think this is me speculating, but it might have something to do with the change of seasons and the, and the fact that a lot of people I know change, um, they have their career that they do, but they also are like, Oh, this is just my winter job. And they just quickly change. And maybe in the winter they go to, to bartending or to serving and then they go back to their, their nine to five in the spring and summer and that that change of um scenery and change of of lifestyle i know what you mean it definitely makes people um i don't know i can just see that it's brought about a bit of change in them and they've experienced something that might not have might not have uh you're in whistler so you're really in the in the place where people have seasonal jobs yeah. In fact, we don't have big enough mountains to have uh, like full-time people that go work at the mountain. Uh, so it's more kind of stable jobs. But I feel like people that do several things in life have more of a balanced view of things in general. Mm-hmm. And they don't think their profession is more valued than other professions. You know, if someone at, in Whistler has a 9-to-5 job and then has 
the bartending job, well, they can value how bartenders are, you know, work hard and do deserve a salary in accordance uh, as well as their nine to five job. Yeah, it's a, yeah, I know what you mean. It's it's a weird melting pot here of all different walks of life. <laughs> Definitely. That's I, do you feel like travel has taught you those lessons or given you a sort of broader scope on life as well? I think so. Because like I I've, I've tried to travel as well places that aren't uh really uh the typical travel destinations of France and Italy and Spain. And when you see like poor countries and countries where people, you know, the people that staff, you know, the restaurant owner is the person that serves you, is the person that cooks for you, is the person that opens the store, closes the, clo- the store, like, and really makes ends meet. You kind of value everyone's job more. Mm. And, yeah, I think you see different ways of see, ways of living in general in travel. I, I think, well, I'm obviously having traveled a lot. I'm I'm skewed towards travel. I think it it shows you many lessons in life, but uh, how different people live, how they work, how, even wealthy countries. There's a lot of differences in how they they live everyday life, and there's like their support system in terms of. Uh, like which countries, for instance, the states doesn't have a universal healthcare. Other countries do. Like what's what's differences? Um, yeah, it's a very broad question, but travel did definitely kind of it helped me in everything in life. I don't know. It's it's hard to say. Yeah. Like you see so many different countries and cultures work that you can't really judge any one culture. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. It's just how, yeah, people are, no, totally, yeah. It's like we were saying before, I think people just at at their core sort of more or less want the same thing and that's just to to have food on the table, a roof over their head and and get a go about their life. And But yeah, it is interesting to see how life changes from place to place and country to country and you think, oh, this is how, this is how it's done here or... I, I guess how many mopeds there are in Asia is a good example. It's, it's to them, it seems like such a normal thing, but to someone from Australia where everyone drives a car to then go to uh, Vietnam where you see four people on the back of a moped and it's like a father, a, a wife, the son and the daughter or something. It's like, oh. Yeah, the three kids. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is well, how they... I tell you, because Vietnam was one of the countries that I had to go to, well, was meant to go to, but I couldn't. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Well, that's I, I I wanted to question you about the your trip actually with North Korea and Sierra. Did you say you'd already been to Sierra Leone or you're going? Yeah, I, uh, North Korea, uh, like North Korea separate, and then Sierra Leone and Liberia uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Um, North Korea was very interesting. Um, you have to do it in an organized tour, and it goes from China with some exceptions you can fly from China to North Korea I did the train from China to North Korea it has to be through a travel agency and you have to stay with the group the whole time there's no free time or just walk around the city time you basically have to be within 
the, the tour leader has to see you in his eyesight and sometimes you know you cross the street and it's not good and sometimes you can't it's yeah did you ever did you ever experience power outages in North Korea? I've heard that sometimes the power grid gets turned off because there's not enough power. Did you ever experience no, that? Or because it's such an organized trip, they mm. literally sometimes they have to wake up at six six thirty a.m. and then they they're with you until ten p.m. and they bring you obviously I'm assuming places there's no power us uh, like yeah like that the definitely going to be on and our hotel had like i mean now i'm gonna say something i mean it was it had between 25 and 45 stories i can't remember yeah it was you know it had a casino it had a rooftop revolving restaurant mm. uh we were wined and dined um and i mean some people in korea i mean the principal of the north korean government is nice in theory, everyone has free healthcare. In theory, everyone has free education and food stamps for so that everyone gets the same amount of food. We went to like some summer camps. Um, I mean, we haven't been to remote rural areas. Um, I mean, it did yeah. kind of seem like we were seeing only the positive, um, but. Pyongyang, which I still can't pronounce correctly, is actually a really like pretty city, and some people are well off in North Korea. And I'm not saying the system works, but they're the theory of the system does is nice. Of the fact that everyone is semi-equal, and that based on your education, you get a bigger house if you're more educated, a smaller house if you're not educated. Like the, the theory of it does yeah. is appealing. Um, you don't get to see anything they don't want you to see because you have to stay in the group. Yeah. Uh, and what about... I was what... one kind of kid that seemed like he was begging and someone took a photo and he was asked to delete the photo. Mm-hmm. So, I mm. mean, the reality of it, I can't really say because, the, you know, it was an organized group. But the theory of it is good. Yeah. And what about Sierra Leone? Did you, um, did you ever feel unsafe in, have you ever felt unsafe anywhere you've traveled or? Uh, no, well, the, not in Sierra Leone or Liberia because the, the company I went with is actually pretty good with security and they're in, they make you, I mean, they, I, I didn't feel unsafe. The, the only place I actually felt unsafe in my life was in LA when my hostel was three streets down of Hollywood Boulevard and like people, <laughs> yeah. all those people were following me. So yeah, that, like I felt more unsafe in the United States than in North Korea or Sierra Leone. Yeah. Uh, in Liberia and Sierra Leone, they, uh, housed us in fat uh, kind of places, so it was all expats, ambassadors, and stuff. So you were you felt safe going out outside, and I mean, people didn't seem to not like us. Mm. Apparently, Liberia is the place where is the African country that likes the United States the most. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. <laughs> 
And there were a lot of people from the US in my groups. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny and you so- say that because I've I've had nights out where I've felt unsafe um, in Australia, for example, like back in King's Cross in Sydney when I was probably because I was still getting working out how going out works when I was 18. But there was nights when I'd go out in Sydney, be walking home to get the train at 3 or 4 a.m. And you'd have kind of leery people or groups of guys following you and one mate and you're kind of like, oh, we're about to get robbed here or... So I know what you mean. It's funny because you think that when or when you tell someone you're going traveling, they some people associate travel with with danger, and it can be dangerous. But you can also find danger, like in yeah, like you said in L.A. or in Sydney. It's um. Yeah. I swear I got followed by a guy that was talking to himself for like four blocks in L.A. and uh, like he was getting closer, and I was alone in the dark and I was more afraid that anywhere I went in a third world country. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so weird. Um I was gonna uh, I was gonna yeah, ask, like Yeah, go ahead. Oh sorry. I was just gonna ask um what it felt like when you first flew out to the to the remote community, that feeling you got when you landed on like got off the plane, was it did you have a lot of nerves and like build up of excitement and like you knew you were beginning a big journey in life, and and it was uh, it was all the, all new. And do you know that you know that feeling kind of like when you start a holiday, but the opposite because you were starting a chapter of life. Did you do you still remember the first time you stepped off the plane in the community? Uh, so I was in the second year of medical school. I wasn't even uh, yet. Well, I was a medical student, but not even uh, clinical uh, when I went to a also a free community, but further up north. And I didn't really know what I got into. I stepped off the plane that seemed really small. And then people are trying to explain to me things like, you know, there's two stores and try to go on the Wednesdays because Wednesday is delivery day. And if you don't go on the Wednesday, then they might not have the proper foods. And I, like, it was kind of all foreign for me. Um, it was kind of, it just kind of was like if you were on an island and you can't even get anything on it. Like you can't. I don't know that Amazon existed. I don't know how long Amazon exists for, but this is probably eleven years ago ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, you could. Did we have cell phones? Well, I'm assuming, but like probably not as good. Like you can really call your family that often. It, it was like if you were like put on a desert island for a month because I went for a month yeah. but I think what you know what made it enjoyable was the sense of community that you know all the doctors and the other students they like my supervisor invited me for dinner at his place with his kids and his wife and then tried to make it enjoyable and then you have to kind of you know rely on each other to have fun and like find activities to do and people were so welcoming so at the end I enjoyed it enjoyed it but yeah no I at first it was a little bit like being thrown in the middle of nowhere for a month yeah but I but I wanted you know I didn't want to go 15 minutes by car away from Montreal to say that I did my rural rotation I wanted if I'm going to do my rural rotation I'm going to do it really rural yeah that's well that's what i love it's it to me it's it's seems like such a big an adventure a big adventure and 
it, like we we're saying before, it's kind of like invaluable ex- life experience, really, and it's something that so few people might ever get to to see or experience or or do. Yeah, and uh, it's you get, and as well, like like in COVID, you get to value what's important. You know, you if you really like your, I don't know, this brand of peanut butter, well, you bring this brand of peanut butter because you won't have it. Yeah, you can't just go to the pharmacy or the grocery store any time you want. Like I want to buy mustard this week because I'm out of mustard. Well. The two stores in Osmaipi do not have mustard that isn't like American yellow mustard, so I'll need to wait. Uh, I come back. Then you get to kind of pick your battles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good way of describing what it's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're nearly at... We're nearly at the one hour mark. Is there anything you wanted to to say before you go about the the community you live in or or anyone who is wanting to become a doctor or is there anything else you wanted to add? Well, you know, in terms of the, becoming a doctor, that's like very variable. I have a very unique path. So for me, like it's definitely the minority of doctors that will work in remote communities. But in terms of the communities themselves, I think there's a lot of uh, um like negative press in terms of the alcohol, drug problems, violence problems, suicide, but you know, they do have a lot to offer. And if you do take the time to, I mean, they're not closed off. I mean, yes, during COVID, but in general, they're not closed off to anyone. Uh, People can come and visit and see that people are actually really welcoming and that, uh, you know, the elders are really happy to share how, uh, ancestors did things and uh, show their traditional way of life and they're really close-knit communities so um, yeah that's pretty much it yeah that's that's yeah totally that's exactly why I wanted to to have you on and and to talk to other people I just I think it's so cool for everyone to share stories and get to know one another a little bit better that's the that's the goal <laughs> Yeah, and hopefully, once yeah. you're not COVID positive and the COVID's over, well, you can come and, I mean, yeah, take a look here, when it, especially when things are, like, happening, because there are some months that it's pretty dead, but uh, when they're doing cultural activities and stuff, it's actually pretty cool to, to be here and meet people and, uh, yeah, see how they lived before and how they live now. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to come out and take a look. Hopefully when things clear up, I'll uh, I'll get the chance. 